another episode of Paranormal, The New Normal. I'm your host, as always, Jeremy, here trying to make the world seem a little more normal. Are we going to accomplish that today? We might. We might. This is a very highly talk, talked about topic nowadays, and it's becoming more normal. So it could definitely work today for in my favor. But, of course, to help you with that, as always, I have a guest. And my guest today is an astrophysicist, an author, Dr. Hugh Ross, and I am very pleased to have him on. How are you doing tonight, Dr. Ross? Doing really well, thank you. So, let me ask this. Usually, I the first question I ask everybody is, what got you into the paranormal? But I'm going to ask a little different question today. What made you want to be an astrophysicist? Well, it started when I was seven years of age. I wanted to know why the stars were hot. And my parents said, well, we don't know, but go to the library. And I came home with five books in astronomy and physics, and that really captured me. I've been a serious student of astronomy ever since. Uh, so that's how I got into astronomy. And to answer your other question, how I got into UFOs and the paranormal, I was 16 years of age, and I was a director of observations for the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, Vancouver chapter. And I told the society, we need to have an exhibit at the Pacific National Exhibition. So we had a booth there, but they put us right next to the Flying Saucer Club. So people would go to the Flying Saucer Club booth, they would come to our booth and say, what do you think about this? And that kind of stuck with me because uh, you know I was an amateur astronomer before I became a professional astronomer. And every institution where I served, they said, well, you know the night sky, you're going to have to handle all the UFO reports we get. So I never intended to become any kind of expert on UFOs, but it just fell into my lap. Right, which which actually, I mean, that's the way it happens with a lot of people from, from what I've been told. I mean, you either experience it yourself and that's what gets you into it, or it just coincidentally falls in your lap, like, like in your case. So, which, very interesting, which... Leads me to my second question I ask everybody, but once again, I'm going to tune it a little. Have you actually seen any UFOs? Well, I've seen lots of things that ordinary people would classify as UFOs. But no, I've not seen what I call the residual UFOs. Those UFOs that defy a natural explanation, a hoax, or some kind of secret military activity. I've not seen anything that falls in that category. But I found I've seen hundreds of things that most people would call UFOs. Hmm. Well, when you say things that most people would call UFOs, what are these things that they're seeing if they're not flying saucers, for lack of a better word? Well, yeah, for decades, I've been processing UFO reports. And the most common uh, factor I see is people will see, uh, have a close encounter with a fireball, and they'll presume it's a UFO. A fireball is a meteor that comes through the atmosphere uh, where the size of the meteor image is more than one quarter of a moon diameter. I have personally seen fireballs that are four times the diameter of the moon. And uh, you know, they'll move in different directions. You'll see smoke trails. And I tell people the ones to watch out for are the ones that don't move at all, but get bigger and bigger and bigger as you continue to watch them. Uh, in that case, run. Yeah. 
Yeah, because those are the ones that are gonna knock out kill. The, those are the ones that killed off the dinosaurs, and they're gonna come back, and they're eventually gonna hit Earth again at some point, I'm sure. But well, even a small one can appear that big in the sky, but when they're not moving, it means it's coming directly at you. And so, yeah, you Makes need. Sense. To <laughs> Makes uh, sense. Other things I've seen people classified Venus. I mean, most people have not seen Venus as a morning star. Uh, when it shows up early in the morning, it can be bright enough to read a newspaper by it. And when people see that for the first time, they're convinced it has to be a UFO. In fact, one report I processed was motorcycle policemen chasing a UFO. And I had to tell them, you're not going to catch it. You're chasing the planet Venus. Uh, <laughs> other things, I mean, I always ask people, uh, were you in a brightly lit room before you went outside? And I discount any report of a UFO where the human observer has not been dark adapted. For about 20 minutes, going from a bright room outside into the dark night sky, during those 20 minutes, your eyes will often frequently exhibit uh, bright lights on the horizon. And that's just a, an artifact of the fact that your eyes are not fully dark adapted. After 20 minutes, they're fully dark adapted. If you see something, then yeah, you're looking at something else. So I have a whole checklist of things that are natural explanations, uh, hoaxes. I mean, when I was at the University of British Columbia, the Undergraduate Engineering Society pulled all kinds of pranks that generated hundreds of UFO reports. You know, like sending up balloons filled with hydrogen, they get up to a certain altitude and then they explode. And uh, people say, hey, there's a cluster of spaceships coming our direction. So, and I've also encountered military activity. One time I was observing on a telescope and this very fast flying object came straight towards our telescope, stopped and hovered. And uh, we called uh, NORAD headquarters and said, can you please keep your pilots away from our radio telescope? They denied having any instrument capable of doing that. We now know uh, that our Air Force has jet aircraft that can stop and hover. Uh, yeah. but in the 1960s, they were denying that they possessed any craft that had that kind of capability. Of course. And I mean, that's, that's something that I've always thought that has been a big, like in the history of UFOs, there has to be a big overlaps of things the government is not willing to admit they know exist at that point right. that they right. that they created. Yeah, for good reasons, they're trying to keep it secret. Of course, which I mean, and this is all actually very topical with the uh, news of that Chinese spy weather balloon that's been in the news the last few days that they finally shot down. But well, it's interesting you mentioned that about a day <coughs> before uh, became public uh, that there was a Chinese balloon going over Montana. I had two people contact me on my Facebook page saying we've seen a UFO uh, just outside of Billings, Montana. And they were describing it for me. And I said, what do you think? And I said, well, you haven't given me enough data for me to make any kind of identification. I just don't know what you're seeing. Uh, but the next day, it was quite clear what they were seeing uh, was that Chinese spy balloon. Which, I mean, uh, the fact that China's doing that now, just, ugh, <laughs> that's a whole world I don't even want to get into this topic of, but it's just scary. That, that, that they're actually that bold to launch that. Like, that's not a well, good thing. Well, they sent one over Mexico as well. So, 
and evidently they've done this in the past. So it's it's not surprising. But yeah, I mean, the militaries of the different nations of the world are engaged in things that, uh, in fact, you know, the International Space Station quite frequently gets identified as a UFO. Uh, the Pleiades Star Cluster gets identified as a UFO. So about 99% of what people report to me as UFOs, I can explain as a natural phenomena, you know, a military activity or a hoax that's been perpetrated. But there's 1% uh, that I can't explain by any of those three means. Now, what's interesting about that 1% residual, you can demonstrate that the phenomena is real, but it's not physical. And there's where you get into the paranormal, something that's real, uh, but it's not subject to the laws of physics or the space-time dimensions of the universe, non-physical reality. And uh, you know, when I was at the University of Toronto, I had Carl Sagan uh, for a summer course. And he was very dismissive of UFOs. But the reason he was so dismissive, his worldview did not permit the existence of non-physical reality. You know, he's famous for that mantra, the universe is all that is or was or ever will be. And so he's, his worldview wouldn't tolerate the possibility of non-physical reality. But as a Christian, my worldview does. And so I said, wait a minute. Uh, God has created another species of intelligent life, angels and demons, but they're not subject to the laws of physics. And therefore, I'm open to the idea that there might be UFO phenomena there that indeed are real, uh, but not physical. And I'm not the only physicist that's been writing on this. I could name you six other uh, physicists that have written full-length books on the UFO phenomena. What I find interesting is all of us agree that what we're seeing in that 1% residual is something that's real, but not physical. So, and uh, almost like a, it's an interdimensional thing, like an ultra, like what they like to call an ultra-terrestrial, something, something that can travel between dimensions. Yeah, that's Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée is a French astrophysicist. He's written the most books that I know of on the UFO phenomena, and he refers to the 1% residual as interdimensional. Uh, it's some kind of interdimensional uh, phenomena. And I'd agree with them. It has to be a manifestation of beings that are not subject to the space-time dimensions of the universe. I prefer to call them extra-dimensional rather than interdimensional. They're operating in dimensions beyond the 10 space-time dimensions that constrain our uh, physical uh, universe. Eh, extra dimensional. I, I do. I, I like that. I agree with that. That's a better term than which. I mean, I've talked to I've talked to people on the show about interdimensional, extra dimensional creatures as well. Uh, especially one guest I had on. He is a astral projectionist, lucid dreamer, and he has in his lucid dreams traveled to multiple different dimensions and met multiple different types of creatures that. I wouldn't say he communicated with them, or at least most of them, but he saw them, and he said some of them looked friendly, and some of them looked horrifying, and like they wanted to kill human beings in a second if they saw them. But, I mean... Well, for me, the strongest evidence is not people's visions and dreams. It's the UFO phenomena where you've got multiple observers 
watching the UFO go through the atmosphere, and you've got multiple observers in different locations, you can track the path and you can track the velocity of the UFO through the atmosphere. But what's interesting is that the observers never report a sonic boom and never report the observation of heat friction. I mean, I've seen the uh, space shuttle go through the atmosphere. And when it does, you hear two loud sonic booms and you see a significant trail of heat friction uh, behind uh, the space shuttle. These observers don't report that. And what's interesting is that in 2000 documented cases where they have a track of the UFO going through the atmosphere at velocities greater than 5,000 miles per hour and where they crash into the earth and you go to the crash site and you can see a shallow crater. If there's snow, the snow is melted. The vegetation is damaged. So something real must have caused that crater, the melting of the snow and the damage of the vegetation. But you know, when an aircraft crashes into the ground, you see a lot of debris. Yeah. When you go to these UFO crash sites, there's no artifacts, there's no debris. Uh, and, you know, that's impossible for any kind of physical craft. But the, the fact that you've got a crater tells you something real caused that. But the lack of sonic booms, the lack of heat friction, the lack of debris and artifacts tells us it's real, but it's not physical. But if it's physical, you get a sonic boom, you get heat friction, you get debris. And also in the recently released reports from our government, they report how Navy pilots, Air Force pilots, have seen these UFOs making sharp right angle turns or stopping in reversing direction and doing so with G-forces that are above 50 Gs. No physical object can withstand those kinds of accelerations, but something non-physical could. And so there's multiple chains of evidence that tell us we're dealing with something that's real, but it's not physical. So it's more because I, I mean, you're, a, I'm a, this isn't the first time I heard of the idea that UFOs, aliens may be extra dimensional instead of actually like traveling through space from their planet straight to Earth or using light speed, hyperspeed, whatever you want to call it on whatever science fiction term you want to call it. But I mean, like, so do you, do you think it's, do you think space travel is actually possible or do they have to have interdimensional travel to be able to accomplish this? Space travel between stars is possible, but only with really tiny spaceships. I mean, for example, we astronomers have a desire to send spaceships to the nearest star because there's a planet orbiting that star that we would like to measure with a lot more precision. And so the plan is to send a thousand tiny spaceships at about 10% the velocity of light. And the problem is the faster you move through interstellar space, the more damage your spaceship's going to suffer from collisions with protons and electrons and other nuclei that are out there, particles of dust. And so the idea is if you send one spaceship, you're not going to get anything. Yeah. But if you send a thousand spaceships that are all smaller than 10 centimeters across, more than half of those spaceships will be totally destroyed. But there'll be enough partly damaged spaceships that will arrive at that planet that we can get some useful information about that planet. So that's 
actually a realistic mission that's on the table uh, for exploring planets orbiting other stellar systems. Uh, but it tells us that nothing bigger than a bacterium could ever survive a trip across interstellar space. And even then it'd be a challenge. Uh, so for physical beings as large as us, there's no way that they can travel through interstellar space. However, beings that are not subject to the laws of physics or subject to the space-time dimensions be no problem for them to travel uh, across those distances. Uh, but nothing that's constrained to physics like us can possibly make it. Which basically throws away my hope of ever living out my Star Trek dreams. But Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, my problem with watching uh, Star Trek is it violates the laws of physics more than four times per minute. I can handle watching science fiction where only violates of one per minute. But, you know, when it gets past four violations per minute, I have a hard time watching it. <laughs> I'm definitely going to be looking at it different now, I'm pretty sure. But so what do you like? Well, I mean, the fact that you said like that we were actually were just talking about the weather balloon. What do you think about the initial Roswell crash that sparked people's interest in UFOs more than anything? And the fact that the government like said for years it was a weather balloon but well i'm the primary author on this book lights in the sky and little green men but i got two co-authors to come in with me and one of the co-authors dr mark clark is an expert on national security and he basically contributed two chapters of the book where he said the roswell incident is now more than uh, 70 years old and that the security system of our federal government simply is not up to the task of covering up something of that nature for that long of a period of time. I mean, he cites what happened during the Nixon administration, where here he had the president of the United States trying to cover up an 11-minute segment of one uh, cassette tape. And how long was he able to cover it up for? Only 11 days. Yeah. So his comment was, if the Roswell uh, incident was real, by now we had had tangible physical evidence coming out of there. But all we have are stories and blurry photographs. So if it's real, there'd be some artifact that you could put in a museum. But nothing like that has ever come out of Roswell. Nothing like that has come out of Area 51. And well, history was not even Soviet security to be up to the task. Funny you say that, because I was going to say, does he not think there's an Area 51 that, like, the government is really keeping, like, people like to say that the real Area 51 is called Area 52, and that it's, the Area 51 is just like a scapegoat to get the people to not know about the real place, but. Well, what happened with the UFO interests is uh, our government made Area 51 twice as big. Uh, in an effort to keep people away from snooping in on their military secrets. Uh, but something else I heard from Dr. Mark Clark, the really black ops stuff, it's not happening at Area 51. There's other sites within the United States that our government is hoping nobody finds out about because they don't want a whole bunch of UFO uh, uh, enthusiasts snooping around there. And so, like all governments, our U.S. government has places where they're doing secret research that is significant military value that they don't want people snooping in on. So uh, yeah, Area 51 has got nothing to do with UFOs. 
But yes, uh, there is military activity going on there. And if people keep trying to crash through the gates, then I think they're just going to make the area even bigger. Probably. I mean, I loved I loved like five, six years ago when there was that whole Storm Area 51 movement for like a couple of days. And I'm like, if you're really just that naive enough that you think you could run in there with multiple people and that the government's just not going to, they literally have the right to shoot you down if you go past a certain point there. Like, you don't think they're going to do it? Do, but, uh, you know, they've made the area big enough that before you get to anything that's at all uh, militarily sensitive, you're probably going to run into a particular breed of rattlesnake. There's a rattlesnake species there that has a venom that's a nerve venom. It's not a blood venom. It's a nerve venom. And as of this date, they have no uh, remedial uh, therapy for dealing with it. So it's like you really don't want to be walking around in Area 51. Uh, one of those rattlesnakes bites you, then there's nothing they can do for you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as a man who hates snakes with every fiber of his being, I that right there is enough to make me never want to go near there. <laughs> but and I, and I don't even like snakes like garter snakes, but a rattlesnake that I can't even be cured of the bite from would be horrendous to me. That's uh, you you want to have an anti-venom uh, mediation somewhere available. <laughs> I would say so. So, but what do you, what do you think of cases like Barney and Betty Hill, where they were supposedly abducted and they did the hypnosis therapy and everything, and you can hear the tapes to this day of what they un unveiled in the therapy. Well, that does happen to people who have close encounters with UFOs. It was the astrophysicist Alan Hynek back in the 60s who coined the term close encounters of the first kind, second kind, third kind. Close encounters of the third kind is where individuals claim to actually have a conversation with a UFO being, uh, where they claim to be abducted on some kind of UFO craft, or they claim to be sexually assaulted uh, by a UFO being. And so these stories abound, uh, but again, we have no physical evidence. You know, people claim they've been raped, but when they're examined by a doctor, they can't find any physical evidence uh, of the rape. Uh, or, you know, they said I was on board a spacecraft. They can't come. They don't come back with physical artifacts. And so, you know, people can have all kinds of different uh, hallucinations, uh, dreams, uh, visions. Uh, but what I've written about in this book, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, it only happens to people who have opened doors to the occult. And that's something that all six physicists I know who've written on the UFO phenomenon agree with. Number one, uh, that when you have these close encounters, they're 100% deleterious. It's never beneficial. The, the best you're gonna come away from with a really close encounter is recurring terrifying nightmares. Worst case scenario, you get injured by the encounter there's even documented cases where people have been killed or their animals have been killed. Uh, so this isn't friendly. It's out to harm us. Uh, but the other thing is that they agree that what you see in that 1% residual, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence to what happens there and what happens in the occult and in demonology. Which, 
that actually is a good segue because I wanted to touch back on that because you are not the well, you're by far not the first person that I have t- had tell me that they believe that aliens, extraterrestrials, are really what we classify as demons and angels in all our biblical texts of different religions. And well, I find it interesting that even agnostic astronomers draw the same conclusion. They'll say things, look, I might not believe in angels, but what I see in the residual UFO phenomena does have a correspondence with what people describe as witchcraft and the occult. Now, what I've documented in Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men is that there's a statistical argument for that conclusion. Namely, that you see a higher percentage of people in Alaska and Hawaii reporting on these close encounters than you do the other 48 states. But it's well known that there's a higher proportion of people in Hawaii and Alaska that are deeply involved in the occult. Or you look at nations, there's a much higher rate of incidence in France than there is in the United States or in equatorial Brazil. Well, those are parts of the world where you got a relatively higher percentage of people involved in the occult. And, you know, I went to uh, the Soviet Union when the communists were still running the show. Uh, The Soviet lab invited me over to speak to scientists, and they allowed me to speak on the topics that the scientists wanted me to speak on. And so almost half of the messages they wanted from me was on UFOs. But what I discovered was back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, quite a high percentage of Russians were reporting these close encounters with UFOs. I went back there in the mid-1990s, and the percentage of plummeted. No longer was it as high a percentage. But what happened in the early 1980s and late 1980s, the Soviet government sponsored research on occult physics at their major universities and research labs. They were doing that, hoping to develop occult weapons that they could use against the West. And consequently, I had the experience of addressing audience of physicists where as much as 25% of them uh, were demon-possessed. And it was because of their research on occult physics. And once the Soviet empire collapsed, uh, when I went back there, I discovered that the percentage had radically dropped. Because again, there is fewer people involved in the occult. And so the last chapter I put in this book, I basically say, here's a scientific test of our explanation. If you open the doors of the occult, you'll have these UFO experiences. Close the doors of the occult and it will go away. And people have written me, because this book is now 20 years old, and that they've written me over the past 20 years saying, I took your advice, I eliminated all the occult from my life, and that was the end of my UFO experiences. Hasn't happened since. And yet because of how scary this phenomenon is, it's basically a good idea. Get rid of the occult in your life, and that this will no longer be a problem in your life. Well, just to, I mean, for myself and for my listeners, I want to kind of dive into that a little deeper. When you say occult, like most people, including myself, even though I've done a little more research in it than some people, the occult to a lot of people is just prancing around in robes trying to summon forth a demon or the devil. Like they, you know, 
what they talk about in rock music or in movies. But what do you consider actual occult practices? Like, what is the actual... Well, the demons are fallen angels, according to the Bible. Mm -hmm. Angels that have rebelled against the authority of God. And uh, they're out to just, you know, try to hinder God's plan. So their goal is <coughs> what God intends to bring about through humanity. So, yeah, they're invading, but they need permission. Uh, the only way they can mess up your life is if you give them permission to mess up your life. But what the demons do is they come to you and say, you want power? I'll give you supernatural power. But it comes at a price. You have to submit yourself uh, to their will. And so, and there's various ways. You mentioned, you know, calling up a demon. A Ouija board is a good example. A Ouija board is an instrument whereby you can invite a demon to invade your life. Astrology is another example. So I have a table at the back of my book saying, you know, all these uh, open doors to the occult are basically you as a human being doing something to invite the demon to come into your life. It could be through occult music, occult art, a Ouija board, astrology. I mean, there's lots of different ways, a seance, lots of different ways uh, that people have been engaged trying to call up some spirit to give them supernatural power. And it's funny that they sell Ouija boards advertised to kids. Yes. Well, like. I mean, I've spoken to audiences of uh, Christian college students, and I'm shocked to discover uh, that about a third of the female college students uh, will, when I question them, admit that they've been involved uh, in these kinds of practices, but it's like they were naive. They had no idea, for example, that a Ouija board is an instrument to call up a demon. They just thought it was a fun game. Uh, and, you know, certain video games fall in that category as well. So we need to be careful. I mean, there's a couple in our church, for example, where they bought a home and they said, uh, they called me and said, there's one room in our house where the temperature is about 10 degrees colder than all the other rooms. And uh, we actually saw a spoon floating in midair in that room. And we got the heebie-jeebies every time we went into that room. And I said, well, chances are the previous owner left behind an occult article. Let's see if we can find it. And so well, we thought that too. We thoroughly searched the house and we found nothing. Well, I organized a group of people to come into their home and we had a prayer session then we began another search of the home. And in their garage, there was a set of rafters and there was a pile of junk lumber on top of those rafters. We hauled all the junk lumber down and the middle of it all uh, was an astrological forecast device. And we went into that room. It was octagonal in shape and you mm -hmm. could see a faint shape on one wall that had been repainted that perfectly matched that octagon. And we destroyed that astrological forecaster. No more spoons floating in the room. Temperature went back to normal. Nobody felt uncomfortable in the room. The demon had left. Interesting. Very, I mean, and the fact that they would just put it up there with like this disused lumber, like why would they, do they think that hiding it would get rid of the demon? Like, <laughs> well, who knows what the previous owner was thinking about? But we actually talked to the neighbors 
and they let us know that that particular room was a bedroom for two teenage boys and that those oh. boys were involved in the occult. So yeah, there was a lot of indications what was going on. But my whole point is the couple that bought that home, they had no open doors to the occult, yeah. but the home they purchased did. It's interesting. It's kind of like the house my wife, my now wife um, lived in when I first met her. Her grandfather bought it back in 1990, and the owners who built the house a couple years prior moved out pretty fast. And her grandfather later found out that it was built on a Native American burial ground. And that house is, to this day, the creepiest house I've ever been in. It, you feel like you're being watched 24-7 in that house. My wife, when I first the first night I slept, I slept, I slept at her at her house. She refused to turn off all the lights in the bedroom at any point. And I'm like, why? She says to me, because I've seen it, and my two sisters have seen it too in this room, and my grandparents. If you turn off all the lights at night, there is a shadowy figure on the ceiling, and it looks like he's holding. It looks like it's holding out a hand, and there's three light orbs circling in the hand. Which, I mean, I'm like, to me, that signifies like a Native American shaman or whatever you want to call them? Well, yeah, I closed the book off by saying there are ways to close the doors. I mean, what this couple did, they got rid of the offending article, and that took care of everything. And so, uh, for example, the home that uh, your wife grew up in or had exposures in, go through that place, get rid of any article uh, that, you know, the shamans might have left behind. And having done all that, you agree with God in prayer that those things are displeasing to him. You're only responsible for what you know. And so, uh, you know, if you've got, like, say, a distant great-great-grandfather that was involved in the occult, you're only responsible for what you personally know that he was doing. Uh, that's occult nature. You confess that to the Lord as something that he sees as sinful and rebellious, and that cuts, that closes the door. And that's something you see in scripture, that when King David took the throne, he confessed the sins of his parents to the Lord because he knew as king, he had authority over the whole nation and wanted to make sure that the nation was not being spiritually impacted because of his kingship. But that's what it took. You confess the sins of your parents and that breaks the link. Well, I mean, I don't know how we would find anything that the Native Americans had on that land unless we, they'd have to dig up the whole yard and try to find if they're buried with anything or whatnot, or try to find the bodies well, even. What I'm saying is, you know, search the property, get rid of anything that could be a connection, and then just agree with God in prayer for what you don't know and can't find. Uh, you don't have to dig down a hundred feet. Uh, you know, God's not expecting you to do that, but he is holding you responsible for what you know. The fact that you know that shaman Indians uh, buried people there and probably did all cult practices, that you need to confess to God. I mean, yeah, there is, because it's, I don't know if you've heard of the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts. It's like the Bermuda Triangle, the Alaska Triangle, and all the other ones around the world. Um, there And it, it actually, the boundary of it is actually right behind that house, kind of on one end. And in the in the forest where that is there's actually a tree in that forest i never seen it personally because i never wanted to because i'm intelligent enough to know not to stay away from stuff like that but there's a tree back there that has 
thousands of eyes carved into it. And it looks like it's been carved that way for a long, long time. According to my wife and her friends and relatives that have seen it. Like, it's just... And, like, they say you go into a clearing where it is and you instantly want to leave. Like, it gives you the creepiest feeling in the world. Well, never ignore that creepy feeling. So, yes, or, I don't. <laughs> or in a relative. I mean, I remember one time uh, years ago, my wife and I went into a restaurant uh, with our six-month-old son. And he began to feel extremely uncomfortable. I mean, we never saw him behave that way before. And so uh, we did not finish our meal. We got up and left. And uh, then we found out later that the owner of that restaurant indeed was deep into the occult. So maybe you don't feel the heebie-jeebies, but someone else might. Yeah. It, I mean, I guess it depends on your tolerance level as well. But now, I mean, as far as do you, because like, you know, the most three reported extraterrestrial types there have, there are usually are the greys, the reptilians, and the Norse, which basically look like people from Finland, Sweden. But those are the three most reported alien types. Do you, from, I've been told before that a lot of people think the reptilians are actually demons, and that's just what they look like to us. Well, the demons can appear in any physical form that they choose. And that's something else I document in Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men is that this phenomenon has been with us for thousands of years. But it's interesting that it keeps pace with our technology. So a hundred years ago, they were appearing to people as slow-moving dirigibles in the atmosphere. World War II, they were the Foo Fighters, moving at the speed of sound. But today in the space age, uh, they're typically in spaceships moving at 15 to 20,000 miles per hour. They're keeping pace with our technology. And in these very close encounters where people claim to be in a trance or they have communication, the story changes. Again, if you go back 100 years ago, uh, in these close encounters of the third kind, these so-called beings would say, we're from the backside of the moon. But when the human population became aware, hey, life's not possible on the backside of the moon, they changed their story and said, we're from Venus. And when people became aware of how hot it was on the surface of Venus, the story changed. They said, we're from Mars. And now the population is aware, you know, beings like us can't survive in any other planet in the solar system except Earth. Now their story is, we're from a distant planetary system. So they're keeping pace with our technology. They're also keeping pace with lay-level knowledge of astronomy. But what I find interesting as an astronomer, for the past hundred years, the stories that people were getting uh, from these beings uh, never matched uh, what we knew as astronomers to be true. Long before the lay public realized how hot it was on the surface of Venus, research astronomers knew. But I'll tell you another story. Um, you know, I was doing radio observations at the uh, Algonquin Radio Observatory in Canada during my graduate years. And I was logging about 1,500 hours of observing time a year. There were two other astronomers that were logging only three or four hours per year. And the interesting thing about the 1% residual, their most frequent occurrence 
is at 3 a.m. in the morning on lonely, dark country roads. Well, where do we astronomers have our telescopes? At the end of lonely, dark country roads. And when are we out there observing? At 3 a.m. in the morning. And yet very few astronomers report having a UFO encounter. But there was these two astronomers that every time they went on the telescope, they had a UFO experience. Hmm. And I remember as a graduate student, kind of mocking them saying, hey, they logged four hours. I logged 1,500 hours. I never saw anything. They see something every time they come in the telescope. And there are two other graduate students I was friend with. They were also logging 1,500 hours a year. They never saw anything. But here's a difference. We three graduate students, no open doors of the occult. Those two astronomy professors, both of them were deep into the occult. That was their hobby. So again, uh, yeah, you can hang out on lonely country roads at 3 a.m. It doesn't increase your probability of having an encounter with a UFO. It's your occult experience that really is a determining factor. I mean, just go ask Robert Johnson about what he did at 3 a.m. on a dark road. But it's just... And then it's 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 ironic because 3 a.m. That's technically what they call the witching hour, where right. the the occult is at its fullest power on Earth, and that's that's the creepy part. I mean, that's the time of night I never wanted to be up in my wife's old house because that that time of night, if we were up playing cards or whatever, it just got that much creepier. And you could swear when you look out windows, things are looking back at you. But well, I notice that people that have these encounters that have opened doors of the occult, they always turn on the lights to get the phenomena to disappear. So yeah, there does seem to be a correspondence uh, with dark conditions and we're in conditions where there's not a lot of people around. I mean, if you've got a lot of people around and it's bright, typically you don't get those encounters. Yeah, which I mean, it makes it makes sense in a way, I guess, because, but do you, well, let me, let me ask this. Do you, because obviously Demons and Angels, you do believe in, but do you believe in spirits? Do you believe that people get people get stuck on Earth when they pass? Well, it's interesting because uh, you do. We, we interviewed here at Reasons to Believe uh, a medical doctor, a cardiologist, who's done a lot of research on near-death experiences. And uh, he would actually have certain messages within the operating room. And uh, when one of his patients reported an out-of-body experience, he said, well, uh, what did you see? And he said, in several instances, they reported uh, seeing that message and were able to accurately tell them what it was. And he says, if their body was on the operating table, there's no way they could have seen it because it was well above on a girder above the operating room table. And he's actually written two whole books on this subject where he documents over 100 cases where this has happened. So yes, apparently it documents that we human beings have a physical body, uh, but our real reality is the non-physical spirit that resides within our body. And when we die, our body decays and the spirit leaves. And therefore, as it says in multiple places in the Bible, we human beings, once created by God, are eternal. Uh, you know, we continue to exist. 
Uh, but it's like owning a car. I mean, uh, eventually your car wears out and you have to abandon it and get a new car. And that's kind of what our body is like. It's like a physical car. I mean, my car has no personality, but if I'm behind the wheel of the car, you may think the car has a personality. Yeah. It's because of who's driving the car. And the same thing's true of our physical body. The body itself has no uh, particular personality or mind. It's a spirit that's controlling the body does. And this is what happens in uh, you know certain demonic phenomena where a demon will come to a human being and try to take control over your body. And so what happens is you wind up with a human body with two distinct spirits in it, the human spirit and the demonic spirit. Which makes sense. It makes sense. And but when you because you, when you said that the spirit is like when you compare it to a car, he says just eventually the body gives out and has to buy a new one. Does that mean that you're a believer in reincarnation? I do not believe in reincarnation. I believe that when we die, we face judgment. That's given unto men once to die and then the judgment. That's in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 9. But the promise in the Bible is that one day God will give those of us that he has redeemed from sin and evil a brand new body. And it'll be a body that will not decay. It's an incorruptible body. I mean, as it says in the end of John 16, in this world you have tribulation, but take heart of overcome the world. As a physicist, I like to paraphrase that passage. In this world you have thermodynamics, but take heart of overcome thermodynamics. Because we live in a universe dominated by the second law of thermodynamics, everything is decaying. So not only is my car decaying, my body is decaying. And just like I'm going to eventually need a new car, eventually I'm going to need a new body. And God says, once the full number of humans that I intend to redeem from sin and evil have been redeemed, that's what I'm going to be able to give to all of these spirits lacking a body, a new body, an incorruptible body, a body that will never decay, a body that will never need any kind of repair. Hmm. <coughs> Pardon me, but... But, I, I mean, you have to have heard, like, the stories that have come out over the last 50, 60, 100 years even um, out of India, out of the United States, of young children who can recall memories from a past life that there's no way that they, they would know these things unless they were there. Unless they were assisted by a demon. And, uh, you know, I think that Satan's strategy, the king of the demons, is to convince all of us human beings you know, don't really worry about this life that you're living. Uh, you'll have a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. You know, I've been both a professor and a student. And what I've noticed as a professor, if I tell my students, you can take the test as many times as you want, my students don't study. They just keep taking the test over and over again. And eventually, by chance, they pass the test. I mean, that's how I was able to convince by professors that had a reading knowledge of German. I just kept taking the German test over and over and over again. And eventually I passed. Yeah. Uh, am I confident in German? Not at all. <laughs> uh, and you know, when I tell my students, you got only one chance, one test. If you fail a test, you're out. 
then they take the course much more seriously and they realize, okay, I only got one chance. And that's the message of Christianity. We have only one chance at this uh, test of life. Whereas what you see in Hinduism is, hey, don't sweat it. You don't make it in this life. You get another chance. You'll get a third chance. You get an infinite number of chances. Uh, but I believe that's a deception from the fallen angels. Because their goal is to convince all of us human beings, do not take this life seriously. And if you read the New Testament epistles by Paul and Peter, they make it abundantly clear. You need to run the race of life for all the strength that you will. Because you've got one chance at this, you want to score as highly as possible on this life. Basically says it's like a marathon. You want to win the race, get the prize, you go for it for all your worth. So, and we all have a purpose in this life. And my purpose for this life is not the same as yours. I need to discover why God created me. What's the purpose he has for me? Then do everything I can to fulfill that purpose and realize I got one shot at this, not two, just one. Which makes sense. I mean, I I, I haven't said this yet, but I my listeners know this, but I was brought up I was brought up Protestant, so I most of the Bible stuff most stuff out of the Bible you said so far I do know because I was brought up to read it and know it. I'm agnostic nowadays because I, I mean, especially doing the show, I hear a lot of different perspectives on the world views, and it's hard to land in one particular place. I used to be atheist, but I kind of there has to be something out there. That's my mindset. There has to be something out there bigger than me that did all this that did something to make everything happen that's happening around me yeah another thing i would say about reincarnation i mean i already mentioned it in this life you'll have thermodynamics and tribulation the god that created the universe is an all-powerful all-loving god and uh you know this life is a life of suffering and so why would god make you go through life again it's like hey one shot, I don't want to expose you to any more. It's what I would tell my students as a professor. My job as a professor is to make you suffer. Because only through me, my making you suffer, are you going to learn what you need to learn uh, to be successful in your future career. But as a professor, I want to meet out the suffering to be at just the right level to maximally benefit my students. And one of the things I've noticed as a professor my best students want more suffering. My worst students want less suffering. And so the message of the Bible is God has meted out precisely the optimal level of suffering for each one of us. But in the next life, there is no suffering. There is no sin. There is no evil. And uh, you know, God doesn't want to expose us to any more suffering than is necessary. Just like I tell my students, I don't want any of you repeating this course. <laughs> suffering with me for one semester is plenty of suffering enough. Uh, don't put yourself through any additional agony. I had those professors in college that said the exact same thing, so it makes sense. I, it completely does. I, oh, my, the one chemistry professor I had, my God, that was enough suffering for a lifetime in that class. But oh, I, I can empathize. I took a suffer. Well, I mean, I did well in my chemistry class, but where I really suffered was the lab because the yeah. lab was contaminated 
put all kinds of pollutants in the air of the lab. And it's like, it was almost impossible uh, to get a successful result. And it really bothered me. There were students in my chem lab who would take their chemistry sample, not do any experiment, go pay a graduate student $50 to do it in a clean lab, and they would get an A. The rest of us were getting C's. <laughs> yeah, I just, I I was a biology major, and I was forced to take three semesters of chemistry, and I barely eked out of each one of them. It's just the way it went. It just, I, I ended up not finishing that degree just because it was just, it was oh, more than I expected. I love the Schrodinger wave equation. I mean, it's an incredibly gorgeous equation. So I'm sure we're yeah. basking in the that experience. Yeah, I just I could I couldn't do all the freaking math and chemistry. It was just too much. I mean, biology was easier, but once you get down to those microbes and those bacteria, I just couldn't remember them all. It was just impossible. <laughs> well, that's the thing about the life sciences. You have, the vocabulary is enormous. Oh, God, in the physical is. sciences, yeah, there's some challenging equations, but the vocabulary is nowhere near the size. Yeah, I yeah. I, if I can go back in time, I that's my my major is one thing I would definitely be changing. I would have just got a bachelor's degree in anything because my life would be a lot easier now if I had one. But you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they like to say. But before we wrap it up, though, I we did talk about your one book, but I wanted to talk about your other books for a couple minutes too, just to, so people have a chance to hear about them and possibly pick, pick them up themselves. Yeah, I've offered now uh, 23 books, and uh, most of my books, like I've got six books on the fine-tuning of the universe, where I talk about how amazingly designed our universe is uh, for us humans to exist in the universe. Uh, I've written a number of books on science and faith, uh, the Bible and science. And uh, for eight of my books, uh, your listeners and viewers can get a free chapter at reasons.org slash Ross, because I want people to get a, at least a taste of the kind of research we do at Reasons to Believe. Uh, but my passion is to keep people abreast of the latest scientific discoveries uh, that day by day uh, give us stronger evidence uh, for the Christian faith. So again, reasons.org slash Ross, uh, they can get three chapters of eight of my 23 books. And I will, of course, put that link right in the description of this podcast episode when it releases that people can just copy and paste or click however it copies over when I do it. And they can go to YouTube and watch debates I've done with the leading uh, atheist scientists. Those are fun to watch, too. Ooh. Anything when you, any, you ever go against Neil deGrasse Tyson, just out of curiosity? Well, probably the one that's gotten the most views is over 400,000 views now is a debate I had with the uh, British chemist. Uh, Peter Atkins. Uh, he's written nine textbooks on chemistry that all of us had. And you mentioned chemistry. Maybe yeah. you had to study Peter Atkins' textbooks too. Sounds familiar. I got to debate him when I was in Britain. And uh, so you can watch the debate uh, free. Just put in Hugh Ross versus Peter Atkins. It'll pop right up. Interesting. May have to check that. I may have to check that out because <laughs> I do love a good science debate. Oh, it's a yeah. fun debate. I mean, he's definitely a committed atheist, and we had a really good exchange. And I had a friendly conversation with him after the debate as well. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, science science is always one of those things that's fun because you could debate something and then you could 
always just be friendly with the person afterwards, usually unless they are just that uptight that they can't handle both. But I've had some, I've had some professors like that <laughs> where you could debate them in class and then afterwards you try to talk to them nicely about it and they just get out of my classroom. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've been there. And I'm sure, and it, do you have, and is there a website where they can go and buy all your books or are they on Amazon or? They're on Amazon and they can go to reasons.org. I mean, there's lots of places you can get the books. Well, I encourage my listeners, please go check it out, especially if you are, if you're into science like me, it's something that may completely interest you and, and involve you. But what if last thing I'll ask the end of the episode, because I think it's a good question to end the episode on. What should somebody do if they see a if they see a UFO before they go reporting it, before they go telling people about it? What are some steps they should go through first to make sure they're not gonna make a fool of themselves? Well, uh, talk to an astronomer, preferably an amateur astronomer that knows the nighttime sky well, and just kind of run it through, because I said 99% have a natural explanation. And so that'd be step one. And if it turns out to be something that's non-physical and real, then you need to say, okay, where in my life have I left an open door to the occult? So, and hey, if they want some help, again, they can pick up this book. Lights in the Sky and Little Green. And I think that's one of the eight books we're offering a free chapter. Yes, I actually, actually, I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to buy that book. Because that book is the, that book is definitely the one that like got my eyes when I was looking at your site. I was like, ooh, that's interesting. As, I mean, as a huge X-Files aficionado who grew up watching the X-Files, I fell in love with the idea of little green men and government cover-ups and all that fun stuff. Well, if you got lots of time, we have 30,000 articles on science faith issues at reasons.org that you can read for free. God, that's a, that's a lot. That's a lot. Well, you can search. I mean, just search for what you yeah. want to read about. Of course. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming on, Dr. Ross. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And it's a very, it's a perspective I hadn't really thought too much on. I've heard it before, but I hadn't really thought too much on it. And it was definitely enlightening to have you provide more detail and more evidence of certain things. So, well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Not a problem. And to all my listeners, you know where you could find me. And Dr. Hugh Ross, I'm sure you can find us by Googling the name because he's big enough out there that just his name will pop up. I did it myself. So, but please go check him out, especially if you're into, especially if you're into UFOs or anything space related. Thank you all for listening, and I will see my listeners in half a week. You can, of course, find me on Facebook as Jeremy Bryant or on Facebook as Paranormal New Normal slash Maniacal Music Musings podcast with the S Facebook group. You can find me on Twitter and the gram as that Juggalo Bastard. And you could find me, of course, on TikTok as that Juggalo Bastard podcast and on YouTube as Paranormal New Normal. Be sure to like, subscribe, and Follow us on everything we do if you're interested in seeing more. Patreon material coming soon.